hear anything because I'm going to be So I didn't really answer the question. Oh, we have a heater. We just use the heater. We set it kind of low because when it goes, when it, um, for me, um, I like to set the heater at 67. You know, well, so because you're in the covers, I don't like it being like 70. But then you can get kind of cold where when you get out, it's cold. So. We do have a fireplace. We'll, we'll have it go on a, on a e during the evening to kind of make the, the house warmer. I'll, I just like to. Are we allowed to have storage? Are we allowed to have storage? Gas fireplace or? Yeah, we have a gas fireplace. Yeah, we I think I think he, I think an airline can't be there, but most have gone to gas. Fire every day. You're still If you get a good, um, you know, good uh, like pot belly stove or wood burning stove, it can really heat the house. Those are really nice. But you know, they take a lot of work, and they're 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 paying to have people around, and you have to feed it. It's nice if you're hanging out around it, but you don't want to. Central heating isn't advantageous when you're. Uh, let's see here. We'll begin. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Point to all. Or online friends. Um, we're in John 19. And, um, you know, it occurred to me as kind of reading it over today that we always kind of look at the passion through some lens, but I think one lens we should look at is you know, Jesus is, is doing this 
in a sense, for us. But he's also setting a, a pattern for the Christian life because um, throughout the New Testament, the reality of baptism as being dying with Christ and rising with Christ is central. And so the idea of Jesus going through these trials and sufferings faithfully is, is doing it for us, but also because we are baptized into Christ, it's also modeled for our own lives of, of faithfully enduring through the trials of life so as to receive in him the verdict that he is going to get and be vindicated in the resurrection. So, um, because, because he is taking the sins of all humanity upon himself, which we none of us can do, nonetheless, each of us still has suffering in our lives due to the reality of sin, whether it be personal sin be committed or the general condition of sin, there is suffering. And and we bear and we bear that in Christ. Jesus is doing it for us, but he's also a model um, for us to follow in terms of faithful suffering. Little heart is well, you know, it's interesting on one level that if you think of suffering just as the, you know, the, the physical suffering of lacking food or shelter, yeah, or comfort, yeah. But uh, honestly, there's plenty of suffering in these hills. There's broken families. There's, 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 uh, there's uh, all kinds of pain. And one of the problems of, of wealth is that it allows you to hide it and you can buy bigger and better painkillers for it. So it, it, it allows people who have it to live in greater denial that life is really painful. And so I, 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 I agree that, that there's probably a shelter, a, shelter, a shielding from some of the suffering, but it, it's also, I think, why, um, you know, People who can buffer their 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 need for God with things are less aware of it, and that is, I think, why Jesus said things like, "Blessed are the poor in spirit." Blessed are, or blessed are you poor, because the less you have, the less you can buffer your need for God with something else, and there and 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 so then you're aware of it and acknowledge it, but. But I just think there's a lot of different kinds of, there's a lot of suffering beneath the veneer. And, you know, uh, yeah, but I, you and I have talked for a long time, and, and you, you know that. Well, I, I do know that. Well, give give thanks. Uh, when I find when my life is like that, I'm always looking for what's under the rock. So. I suffer psychologically as a Christian. Yeah. I have a sense of. Yes. So I think I think we can 
we can identify and understand that he's doing this for us and it gives us a narrative in which we can do it with him in a new way. And and, and maybe the, the, the biggest idea of sharing the cross is that it transforms um, the pain of death into the pain of birth. And this is what accounts for the joy of it, this that we're supposed to have in the Christian life in the face of suffering. Because um, is, as uh, St. Paul says, this momentary light affliction is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. But the world doesn't know that. The world just has affliction that reminds them we're all going to die. Which is why, in from the perspective of the world, we're always not, you know, trying to get rid of suffering because it reminds us of death that can't be conquered. Yeah, more painkillers. So let's jump on to John 19. We'll pick up some discussion as we go. So John 19, 1. So we ended up last time when they, uh, Pontius Pilate offered to release Jesus, as was the custom at the Passover feast, and the crowd instead um, chose uh, uh, to have uh, Barabbas. So, um, so, so Pilate took him, took Jesus, and scourged him, which is always a thing in terms of, of Pilate saying Jesus is innocent uh, and supporting him. It's like, okay, yeah, it's not exactly a, a, a firm stance because scourging was a, was a bloody and painful thing. It was not... You, know, you, you you put your hands on that wall and get whipped in the back butt once, but this is several times. So, um, no. So he said, "Well, only only the only the Romans had the the, the authority to 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 you know power to do that that kind of, of punishment." Verse 2, the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. They said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Now, it's likely that, um, you know, obviously we, there's a sort of irony here that he's wearing a crown, he is a king. It's probably likely that, you know, they, a lot of would-be messiahs got crucified. So probably the, the mocking of, oh, here, you're the deliverer, you know, and so, but here it reaches its highest irony that that um, the Jewish leadership has rejected their king, but he is the true king. And um, the Romans, ironically and mockingly, put a crown of thorns on his head and put a purple robe on him, which is a royal robe royal color. And so you have you have the true king of the universe, the Lord, king of king and lord of lords being rejected um, by all, by, by, by a conspiracy of Jewish leadership and Gentile authority. 
and again, for me, for those who, who have any interest in Revelation, I believe this is the backdrop for the, the image of the what's called the Whore of Babylon in Revelation chapter 18, who sits on the back of the beast. There's this conspiracy, and it it, it does, you know, that that's it, its true nature is an unfaithful woman. Um, using pagan power to reject their true king and, and, and keep the status and comfort they have in that, in that uh, alliance. The hail king of the Jews, they struck him with their hands. You know, um, the Gospels, there, there are, um, you know, Articles written like a doctor at Calvary, where it chronicles just how brutal this beating was. The Gospels never focus on that because they don't really mean to um, to to have us uh, be oh look how much suffering. And there really are it, it, when it comes to like um, our Good Friday liturgy, actually juxtaposes these two sort of. They're not conflicting. They're just they're just aspects of the crucifixion, and so I, I would say that the one that causes that enters into the suffering the most is to him Stabat Mater at the cross, her station keeping, stood the mournful mother weeping when she saw her dying Lord, and so we, we're mourning over that and this beating and this thing that's happening. So there's a mournfulness. The other side of it, which is more what John emphasizes, is the king who is who is being who is suffering and dying is ruling at the same time. So he's a triumph. He's triumphant here. This is happening to him, but he is he is, he does not at any point in this narrative surrender his 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 sovereign control of everything. He's submitting to it for our sake, and so this this is why he still retains his authority and still even from the cross. Makes judgments and sentences, so we'll, we'll cover that as we go. Verse 4 Pilate then went out again and said, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said, Behold the man. Now there's a lot of, of deeper meaning in that because behold the man um, Greek would be sort of the anthropos and Hebrew would be Adam. Behold, and in a sense, the first man Adam who sinned and in whom all sinned. Now we have the man, the new man Christ, who will die for that sin and and so, and ironically, to um, to die for that sin requires this wholesale rejection. Literally, nobody is with him in it. He's going to, you know, what he's going to do, he's going to do as the man who does for Israel and humanity what, what the first man failed to do. And he will atone then for the sin of the first man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. 
So there, you know, crowd psychology is always interesting. We know that Jesus was popular in Jerusalem, but you had some subtle shift. And this could happen too, you know, someone who's the most popular guy and then he disappoints in some way and opinion shifts and all of a sudden. So it, it's probably the leaders who are, you know, feeding, you know, fomenting this kind of, of, of attitude that the crowd then jumps on. Yes. So far, they've talked about the Romans. Now we get that in the gospel. Yeah, that's, 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 I think that's a very interesting point. It, it would fit with um, John's throughout his gospel, the pejorative use of the Jews, which is not like all, but is the Jewish leadership. So I, I think John is, is is probably, that may be a purposeful way to to focus responsibility right where, right where it is. And and it's not just a mass uprising, it's, it's these, these people did this. At least another thought, which I'll, I'll um, come to in a minute. Um, there, you know, chief priest officers saw him. They say, "Crucify him! Crucify him!" Pilate said to them, "You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him." So, what's interesting in the narrative is that. Um, The Roman authority has found him not guilty. The Jewish authority, the Sanhedrin, found him guilty of what? What's that? Calling himself, Calling himself God. Blasphemy. Blasphemy, but, but essentially the charge was you say you're God. So that's ultimately, which was, of course, true. So, so, so the, the, the point is that um, the narrative is of trial highlights his innocence. Nobody's been able to say you did this, so there's a reason for you to die, which is which is the idea of his dying for us in innocence. Whereas, like. If we were being held on trial, we might be relatively innocent, but somebody could say, well, you, yeah, I did. <laughs> Verse 7, the Jews answered, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. And there's the Jewish verdict. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. Not that he had a full confession of Jesus as the eternally begotten Son of God, but you know, the Romans were superstitious. They believed in many gods. And, you know, what maybe Pilate's, he's already a little disconcerted by the presence of Jesus. 
So his wife they, makes him upset. Huh? His wife is still. Yeah, not in, it, it's in Matthew's narrative. He says that. I mean, John doesn't have that, but yeah, but, yeah. But if we take that to be part of the story, yes, right. There's um, John knew that Matthew said. That John knew that Matthew said. John knew that Matthew said. Mm -hmm. The possible frame and went into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Here's the Isaiah as, as a lamb before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. His point is, he's not trying to get himself released, he's not defending himself. It's interesting. Um, in the early martyrdoms, yesterday, we are uh, actually Tuesday, we had the Feast of St. Ignatius, who was the first and early second century bishop of Antioch, who was martyred in Rome. And when he was traveling to Rome, he wrote ahead to the Romans saying, don't try to get me released. Don't exercise your political authority. He was desirous to do this, to share in the passion of Jesus. Jesus, no, Jesus, this is what Jesus is supposed to do. So. He's not trying to get out, which would be, again, disconcerting to a to a ruler who's wondering who this is, a little uneasy. Almost every prisoner would always fall down, please, please, please. And here's a guy who's who's not answering. And I would also say that that in terms of the way that Christianity conquered the Roman Empire was precisely by this power that it could face the threat of death and be unmoved by it. Because it is by the threat of, of death that we that, that the control was exercised. And so even the early church, the martyrs, when Rome's were gonna we're gonna crush you by by uh, by killing you. But the more martyrs who were made, the more the more attractive the church was in the sense that this is something people are willing to die for. And people want to live for something worth dying for. And I think this is a problem in Christianity or our culture because I think as it's suddenly become a more consumer phenomenon, it's, 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 it's become more the thing that makes us happy or the thing, but not the thing we'll die for. And I think that the, the moving back to a faith that's worth sacrificing for. That's the only faith worth living for. And so this is there's the origin of it. He didn't give any death. He, he, yeah, he's, he's, he's willingly facing death and willingly facing the conquer it. Verse 10, Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? The Pilate's a man of authority. The Jesus is is understands he has that power, but is making is not um, afraid of it. Jesus answered, "You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above." And This is the idea of you know the providential ordering of God is that Pilate is in this place precisely to do what he's doing, even though it's a bad thing. And in our own lives of suffering, I think 
the idea that embracing the idea that God acts sovereignly in all things, that even the the apparently bad things that happen to us are not beyond God's sovereign and redemptive control. That's what allows us to 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 know that God is in all things. When we have trouble just saying, oh no, this is you know, we 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 have the idea that this is something that removes us or separates us from God. And so I think this is a, a central point of of embracing what what that that form of suffering that Christ calls us to share. So the main question is is that question, is this what you're calling me to do? Is this what obedience looks like for me? There's another kind of suffering where we do the wrong thing and her and get so Peter says this in his first epistle, let none of you suffer as a thief or a blasphemer, he has a list of things, because you could suffer just because you did something wrong. But if we if we are trying to be faithful and a certain amount of suffering comes upon us, that's where God works works in the midst of our lives to do it. And he, his sovereign control is not just it exists in the midst of suffering. So he was you couldn't have this authority unless it was given to you. And he says, therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Which means the Jewish leadership that delivered me to you, which is an interesting meditation because um, um, I just, as an anecdotal, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a uh, movement of Christianity called Messianic Jews and they're sort of anti-Gentile Christianity. They're, 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 uh, but they'd always made the point that you know, that, you know, the the, the 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 Romans killed Jesus, not the Jews. But while that's true, separate Pontius Pilate, this suggests that the culpability for that, and this this again is why, um, you know, I, I believe that Revelation, which is definitely related to John deals at least on one level with the judgment that came on Jerusalem for this preeminent rejection of the Messiah. Um, and it's because it's, it's a greater sin, it's a serious sin. Ultimately, as, as we've learned in John's Gospel, it is the sin to not put your faith and trust in him whom God sent. And righteousness is to is to receive him. Verse twelve. Then on Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, "If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar." And you know, to Diane's point, it's still saying the Jews here. This is the leadership. Taking lead in, in, in John's gospel. And the, the one I want to say here is that um, it's not that the gospels aren't telling the same story, but that each writer is, is um, telling the story from a perspective. And we'll best understand that unique aspect and angle if we stay within that perspective. And so the other Gospels will will focus on the fickleness of the crowd who were, you know, saying yay and then crucify him. 
John is, I think, really focusing it on the culpability of the Jewish leadership. And so they are saying, and the, and the hypocrisy here is, whoever makes himself a king uh, speaks against Caesar. They were not at all opposed to a king who would speak against Caesar. They presented Caesar. So it's, it's completely, um, you know, political statement. We want you to, to condemn him, so we are... Because that's where where where, where um, Pilate would get in trouble would be if somebody fomented a revolution. Caesar heard there was a problem in the province of you know, Judea. Pilate's done. One thing he got to do is got to keep the peace. So, so that's the threat. He didn't they didn't really care if someone calling himself God. That's great as long as you pay your taxes. Shut up. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it's just a tremendous irony that he who will come again in glory to judge the world is now being judged by the world. And I think it's an ongoing judgment by the world on Jesus that the world does not like the way he's saving the world. What's all the suffering? Really, God, why would it happen? Well, if Jesus is really God, why would he die? So there's a constant referendum on the fact that people don't like the way God is saving them. So the the verse three, hail king of the Jews, are the Roman soldiers who beat him up. That's not the people. Those are Roman soldiers who've who've taken him from Pilate, scourged him, dressed him up. So those are the Roman soldiers who are saying that. They're mocking him. Then um the uh And they would be happy if he would be king if he'd do it their way. So their 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 objection to Jesus being king is not the object to a king of the Jews defying the Romans, but they 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 uh, they they reject him as the one. Um, so, but the point, Judith, to be clear about this, that the, Ro- the, the, the reason the Romans would kill someone, would execute someone judiciously, is they are revolutionary, claiming to be a king, claiming to have greater authority than Rome, and they don't put up with that stuff. Jews were fine with that, although they're, they're being disingenuous here. The Jews put him to death because he claimed to be the son of God, and that was blasphemy in their eyes, because 
even though he was, but that's, you know, they, so, so there are two different interests. The Jewish leadership especially are, are sentencing because he claims to be the son of God, claims to be someone they need to bow to, but the Romans are killing him because he claims to be a king and he's dangerous politically. And the compromise of the Jewish leadership is they had no, they had really had no problem with a Messiah being political. They just don't like, they just reject Jesus. So they want the Romans to do this. So he's in, in the judgment seat, passing judgment. This is one of the stations of the cross, Pilate sitting in the judgment seat. Now, it was the preparation day of the Passover at about the sixth hour. So, for preparing the Passover, that's when you make sure you had your lamb, because you had to kill it, so you could have the feast. So, here's, here's the lamb. And... He said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? Chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar, which was. Now, the chief priest is interesting, you know, because you, though, though sometimes we group, you know, the Jews together here, if we were to be in the first century, you know, the Jews are composed of probably, you know, four to seven or eight subgroups. The priests um, would have had different interests, some crossover, but different, different interests than, say, the Pharisees. The priests operated in the temple, had a place of, of um, privilege that allowed them the status and authority. And so they enjoyed Caesar's protection, Roman protection, because it was a privileged place in a way that others, um, you know, the, the, the Pharisees would have been a little more probably anti-Roman, a little less temple-centric. But together, they all see, you know, they all see Jesus as a threat. It's kind of interesting. It's like um, if you get various factions, you know, who have a common enemy and they all, um, they can all unite because they all hate that. But then once that's gone, we're back to, wow, you know, it, you know it, it's, it's, um, it is why ultimately the, the, you know, ecumenism among Christians has to be our common devotion to Jesus and at least a grace in terms of the difference of how we, and the grace would be of, you know, differences now, not heresies so much, but. but. We have no king but Caesar. Bishop? Yes. Um, and don't the, don't the Jews or the Hebrews, didn't they often refer to Adonai, king of the universe? You know, you hear that a lot when you're with Jewish people. They call um, I think it's ironic that, that 
PSA. Yeah, I'm, I'm not so, so I, I'm not sure. I I, I um, tell me about that. What, what, I just uh, when I when I've read different uh, uh, Jewish stories when they're talking about it at when they pray, and I think they kind of did this on the chosen as well. They would say, you know, Adonai, King of the Universe. They would refer to God as King of the Universe. Okay. So interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah and, and the word Adonai, which, which in in Hebrew means something more like Lord. Yeah. They would, um, when they came to the name of God in the reading, they wouldn't read it at least at the end, at least after the end of the Old Testament, between the end of the Old Testament and the, of the New. When they began to read those passages, they they didn't say Yahweh or Jehovah. They would say Adonai. Or Hashem, which is the name. I, I wasn't, I'm not as familiar with that tradition. But. but, but when I think the tradition in the synagogue was you're reading the Torah scroll, you come to the name of God, you don't say the unspeakable name of God, Yahweh, you say Adonai. And, and part of what the objection to Jesus would be is he's associating himself with the name of God. So that's that's part of the blasphemy, because to do that was blasphemy. Now, to, to be clear about that thing, I want to know, is that that wasn't really an Old Testament thing. So understanding some history here that the Old Testament ends about four or 500 B.C. In the Old Testament, you know, the name of God was not unspeakable. People named themselves, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, attacking the name of God onto your name. After the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians in 586 BC, they went into exile, they came back and rebuilt. This, that's what led to the heightened reverence. Oh no, now we won't even talk about God. And it's, it's, even that's, it's a little bit misplaced. God just wanted pure devotion, not. You know, and that's and that's almost. You can also even in the Christian tradition, you can have almost a, a false or an extreme kind of on so reverent to this thing that God doesn't want you to be. You know, it's not that kind. The the, the healthy fear is 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 a respect that this is God who I follow, and therefore God gets my whole heart, and He became flesh and dwelt among us because he wants to be close to us. And so, you know, the, the, the fear where I can't even, you know, uh, there's, there's always a balance in the life of prayer between um, the desire to draw near to God and a proper reticence about what that means. That's, that's the healthy... Um, balance and grace and that's why um being that god's presence is revealing and it helps us to see ourselves as we are that would be like isaiah 6 where isaiah has this vision you know uh in the year the king of died, i saw the lord sitting on his throne isaiah seeing this and he also goes Whoa, you know, he begins to see, like, compared to this heavenly scene, I'm, I'm just a sinner. And then the seraphim brings a coal and touches his lips and makes him clean. But 
the awareness of our sin, repentance, and then trust is what allows us to come. So the reverence, the, the, the right vision does reveal ourselves. We must be willing to face that judgment. And that God will make us clean. The attempt to turn God into like a good buddy who doesn't care very much about what's wrong in the world and with us, that's a fault, that occurs on the side of, 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 you know, of a God who's just gracious and he's like, an indulgent parent. The opposite error is to be so afraid and so fearful that you can't have that close relationship with Abba, Father. The balance is kind of holding those in tension. And it's like the experience of grace is always a, a mixture of conviction and embrace. That we're drawing near and we're seeing ourselves as we are, but God is, is embracing us anyway, and that's the transforming tension. So, verse 16, then he delivered him to be crucified, so they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull which in Hebrew, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. Where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. For, for John, I just may have been, usually um, the multiplicity of languages would have been for the Romans. I want you all to see why we're crucifying this person. So you be warned, be, a, be very afraid that we'll do this to you. But, but it's interesting here, it becomes more of an evangelical message in all languages, the king of the Jews. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. Now, there's a great deal of political tension and animosity between Pilate and the Jewish leadership. I don't think they don't like him, he didn't like them, but they have to they have to have a rapprochement to keep the peace. So that could be a sort of subtle dig, like, yeah, you want me, yeah, no, who's who's King of Jews? I'm I'm doing I'm doing what you want me to do because you forced my hand, but now here's something, and ironically it ends up being the real identity of Jesus over the cross and his death proclaiming to all who he really is and why he's dying as the Son of God, as the King of the Jews, for our sins. Verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart and also the tunic. 
So this is, you know, the clock has some value. Not like today where use t-shirts or whatever, a dime a dozen. Uh, and and also because the, the tunic was, was purple, which would have been a valuable fabric. The tunic was, was without seam woven from the top in one piece. Therefore, they said among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. But the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. Where does that come from? Is it a psalm? Yeah, psalm. psalm 22. Psalm 22, which is probably the most... Um, Psalm 69 also has a great deal of, 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 of sort of crucifixion, illusion, and prophecy in it. But Psalm 2, it begins with, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so here's another prophecy in the midst of Psalm 22. Um, it's likely that, you know, they, they, they divided my garments, cast lots. This is probably something the soldiers got to do with prisoners. Whatever they tend to have, they could, they could get for the, doing the dirty work. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Now, there stood by the cross of Jesus, mother, mother, sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, or Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. Um, there's different identifications of, of women who were at the cross. Um, Probably the most cryptic here, or the, or the most, the one the biggest, biggest question mark is his mother's sister. So uh, his mother was there, married by the cross, um, and there's four women there. Um, Well, so if we're looking at um, his mother's sister, if you parallel this with the other counts, you could associate with Solomon, who's, who's, who's see by, by connecting the dots, the mother of James and John, the son of Zebedee, she might wife of Zebedee. So it could be Solomon. We don't know that. It would, it would be the assumption that his mother's sister relates to the name put next to Mary in another gospel, which isn't isn't um, uh, for certain. It could it, it could be that certain names are mentioned because of, of the writer who knew them or the audience he's sending them to, not mentioning people who wouldn't mean anything to, to his audience. Cleopas or Cleopas, um, on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, uh, two disciples, one is this Cleopas. So this could be his wife at the crucifixion and him to whom Jesus appeared on the road to Emmaus. Possibly that's the issue here. 
And Mary Magdalene always, always central, central in these passion narratives, especially in John's Gospel. And so they have a kind of fellowship. And uh, when we get to the resurrection narrative, I think one is about about um, Mary Magdalene, um, who whatever background she came from, sort of put some demon possession. Uh, there's at least a meditation that of all these people, she had the most to lose because she didn't have any family. She probably didn't have any family. This probably was it, which is why when she's in the garden, it's like everyone else is hanging out, you know, because if, if Jesus ends up not being who he says he is, Everyone else just go back to life as normal. Well, life is normal for someone who was demon possessed and involved. It's not. It's not uh, so. It's a meditation of why this would have been a particularly um, sad for her. Of course, for for a mother too. To to. Uh, it's, it was interesting too. We have uh, Mary at the cross. And we talked about Good Friday. We, we, we um, sing Stavot Mater at the cross, the station keeping with the mournful mother weeping where they hung the dying Lord. But yesterday was a feast of the purification, which is celebrated in church today. And um, at the purification, when Jesus is presented in the temple, Simeon shows up and prophesies a sword so pierced through your own soul also, which is kind of a fulfillment here now. In, in the crucifixion. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which we understand to be John, by tradition the writer of the gospel, it would be a, but it, I will love it, that, you know, it's you, you sort of self-aggrandizing, but it probably was um, John the Beloved that they probably just had a nickname for him as that. And it looks as though John was younger. I mean, that's the appearance that John was younger, so that, um, um, you know, if you have a younger disciple who's beloved, it will cause less jealousy than, you know, someone of the same age. Yeah, you'll kid ever loves the kid kind of thing. So that, that could account for why he could say this without, um, with some context. The disciple was standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. Now there's a number of things, uh, and it says from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. Um, one, there's just a practical understanding that, you know, you're, you, you, um, we have assumed that Joseph is long dead, that Mary is now a widow and childless in the ancient world. That didn't, that, that was problematic for one's livelihood, although they're probably extended family and stuff like that. But Jesus particularly commits her to the care of John, who is younger and therefore likely to, um, likely to be able to take care of her. The, the, the uh, tradition there is that uh, 
John uh, uh, ended up in Ephesus, and so did Mary, and and so uh, the larger point about this, I think, application-wise, is that the the crucifixion, death, resurrection of our Lord, reconfigured family is very clear from the New Testament that the family of God in Christ with the Spirit means more than blood family. And a higher allegiance comes to this than to your natural family. This is played out in the um, early church where most of those who followed Jesus uh, in families that, that didn't follow him were shunned and cut off from the community. So to follow Jesus was to be rejected by your family. But even now, and there's a balance here. It doesn't mean you're, you know, if your family is, is not a believing family, it doesn't mean you're nasty and disobedient to your, it just means that in terms of ultimate allegiance, it is Christ. And every other responsibility, whether it be son, daughter, husband, wife, is understood in the light of the kingdom. And sometimes this gets turned around in a culture where the family is seen as the thing that, that, um, that, the, that the kingdom is then used to bolster. And that's not it is it is the kingdom is preeminent and we and this is throughout the New Testament, everything has its meaning in reference to the kingdom. Um, so a child will honor a parent because God because God desired us to honor authority. But there'll be limits in terms of that because if it, it if it means there's some kind of uh, evil or disobedience involved in that, then there must be disobedience. So there's always a higher uh, and Jesus made this point in other places in the gospel when, when he when he um, you know he's teaching somewhere and he so they say, Hey your your mother and your brothers are out here, they want you. And he said, Who is my mother, my brother, my sisters, whoever hears the word of God and does it. So it's important to understand the reconfiguration of the family. And the family, especially as a result of Pentecost, that the bond of the spirit in Christ is eternal and transcends the, the natural bond of blood. That's what the New Testament teaches. After this, verse 28, Jesus, knowing that all things are now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, that I thirst. Psalm 22:15, a cross-reference there. Now, a vessel of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. This is um, related to the word, it's a form of the word telos. It has been completed. And it, in a larger sense, it means um, 
Jesus has completed the work of the old covenant. All that was necessary to fulfill the Torah that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai has now been completed by the Son of God in his life and death. It is, I should notice, you've talked about in sermons, this is the sixth day. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, uh, but you rest on the Sabbath. So Jesus is following that in his own covenant fulfillment, that same chronology. And that's, that, that's, the, that's the sort of horizon of Holy Week, working Palm Sunday through Good Friday, finishing the work, and then resting on the Sabbath. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And the important thing about that, a couple of things to note about Jesus being in, in charge. He, on the cross, woman, behold your son, son, behold your he is ruling from the cross. And here, when he dies, he gave up his spirit. Nobody took it from him. This is a willing offering of his life. And that's what makes the sacrifice acceptable, because he willed it to be. Sacrifice, an unwilling sacrifice, doesn't have the acceptable. It's not acceptable to God the same way. For, for which? That, that, uh... Well, um, Isaiah 53 is probably the, the, the most profound passage where um, describes someone giving his life for, for us. Um, Psalm 22 certainly hints at that. Um, there's another psalm. It, uh, in the in your hands I commit my spirit. There's a song that that, that also could, could relate to this. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. The idea is your legs broken because you can lift yourself up to breathe if your feet are nailed, but if your legs are broken, you can't. So when you break the legs, they'll suffocate immediately and die quicker. Otherwise, you might have to sit there and wait for a while for them to die. Is that true? Huh? Yeah, is that true? Yeah. Across, they've been... And the legs Oh, they have to lift up. Great. You can't, you can't get air in your lungs because you're hunched over like this. You have to lift yourself up, which you mean pushing up on your legs. Right now, they break their legs. They can't breathe. Okay, quicker. When they came to Jesus and saw, verse 33, that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. 
This is um, it, well, I'll read the next verse. And he has seen, has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may believe. In First John, there's a passage read during Easter about this is who came by by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and blood. And John, I think, in this water and blood sees images of baptism, Eucharist. Um, the other images that come out here are um, in the beginning, woman was made from the side of man. Here, the new man pierced in the side, out comes water and blood, we, and, and so the bride, the church, the new, the, the redeemed woman is created on the cross through, through the water and the blood. That, I think, imagery is central in John here, who thinks very much in terms of those, the, that, that Genesis scene. And that's why he takes verse 35 to highlight, hey, I really saw this, because it's, it's a symbolically powerful thing, they see. Even if medically something happens a lot. These things were done that the scripture should be filled, not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierce. Um, Look on him when we pierce Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Verse 38. After this, Joseph bar Matthias, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, because he was probably, he was one of the Sanhedrin too. So it lets us know that though that there was a majority opinion among the Sanhedrin, the Jews, not each and every one of those who was among us. Another will be Nicodemus, who we'll get this to in a second. I went along with it. Being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. He probably, as a Jewish leader, had access to the Roman authority because so he had influence in that way. Also, we taught earlier that probably when they went into the court of the high priest, John was able to get in. It seems like John is kind of a guy who, who knows guys, so he he probably had inside intelligence about Joseph and Nicodemus. So he came and took the body of Jesus. Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, back in John 2, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds, to embalm the body for, for death. And they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with its spices, as is the custom of the Jews to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. There's a great debate um, about exactly where the tomb is. The, if you go to Jerusalem, the traditional location is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. 
then there was the idea that um, somebody found a garden tomb that became kind of evangelical shrine for pilgrimage in, in Jerusalem. And now there's there's some ideas that way well, you just put out the wall, outside the walls, but there's there's a case for the sepulchre still being the place that the walls are moved. So you whole bunch of stuff to read about that if you want to know exactly where it is. It's always fun. It's, it's interesting to look at, but the point is he really did die and was really buried. And it's when people want to avoid the point, they argue about something like where was it? There we are. Jesus rests, finishes his work, and rests on the Sabbath. And they're all leaving him in the tomb because, according to the Jews, after sundown on Friday, which is the beginning of the Sabbath, the Sabbath would go from sundown Friday until sunrise uh, Sunday morning. Um, you couldn't work, and to bury someone was work. So this is what you had to do. And so you put spices to keep the bodies not smelling too bad. So when you went back, you could do your work. Let's pray. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face to shine upon us, to be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us, give us peace this day and forever. To be with you all. Rhonda, Christine, Nancy, Elizabeth, Ed, Mimi. Not the same. <laughs> Bye. They usually highlight some kind of prophecy. So, so this is saying that that's right. That's highlighted prophecy, and that's where it is. That's right. We're all ten. So this is something with prophecies uh -huh. that Exodus and Exodus. You can go look those verses up and see something about it.